You're about to hear my conversation with Brent Choice. We talk all about earnings season, central banks around the world and what that might mean for equity markets, as well as the price of oil and the reaction to the price of oil. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to have Brent Joyce back for our bi-weekly conversation. Uh, let's jump right into it. It is uh, July 26. We're in the midst of earning season. Brent, what are you seeing out of this earning season? And uh, is anything surprising you? Oh, good afternoon, Matt. It's great to be here again. Thank you very much. Yeah, the earnings season, you know, it's all eyes on the U.S. Uh, just for our listeners' note, the Canadian earnings season, um, like many things in Canada, comes a couple of weeks, uh, about a month almost, uh, behind um, S&P 500 earnings. So we have about a quarter of U.S. corporations that have um, uh, delivered. And it's the surprise is the surprise. You know, we've had a number of quarters now where the analyst community has uh, missed massively by um, by the upside surprise that's coming from, uh, from right. corporate America in terms of earnings. You've got a lot of cost savings for sure. Um, expenses that are no longer in the business, they're likely to come back. But you, know, you think about entertainment, um, travel costs uh, in businesses. The pandemic winners continue to win as there's likely been a um, semi-permanent or permanent shift uh, in consumer behavior and, and business behavior toward the work from home, stay at home, all that sort of stuff. And, and there are still uh, concerns about the, the disease in the U.S., particularly with this Delta variant. But the COVID sure. um, uh, sufferers, the ones that, uh, I hate to call them COVID losers, but those businesses that were most impacted by the lockdowns and the pandemic, the service side of the economy, are now starting to perk up and uh, and show uh, good signs of improvement. The last week, I guess the real poster child for that were the airlines. And it was a mixture in terms of meeting uh, or beating expectations. But what there's a lot of emphasis on in earnings season that uh, is behind just the top line uh, numbers is the conversations that are coming out of the calls with uh, corporate management. Right. And that's where the airlines were pretty optimistic about um, the current environment and what they see moving forward as well. Great. Uh, and, and what do you see then uh, on markets as a whole as far as uh, movement? We've had a, a fairly nice rebound um, from two weeks ago, I guess, where we had uh, a, a bit of uh, volatility. Um, what are you seeing both uh, in the U.S. And, and within Canada? Yeah, I mean, there's been attempts at a consolidation or, or a sell-off, little growth scares, We've talked in the past and we wrote at length uh, in our mid-year outlook piece around peak everything and that as much as we're seeing um, some of the positives become less positive, they're still very, very good. Uh, whether that is the um, uh, purchasing manager indices data, whether that is uh, job gains, uh, things of that nature, reopening, uh, obviously the, the vaccine uh, progress outside the U.S., 
you know, continue to, to get needles and arms in the U.S., but at a, at a slower rate. And so that is the backdrop. It's clearly Great. has the bond market a little more concerned than it does the equity market. But there's been attempts at these sell-offs. None of them have amounted to anything more than 3 4% as what appears to be the, the buy-the-dip crowd comes storming in um, after a couple of days of weakness and, and a few percentage points of, of sell-off. And that makes a lot of sense, really. Um, with the backdrop being as supportive as it is, you know, the purchasing manager indices is a good example. They are rolling over, but still at, you know, levels that are in and around 60. Uh, and, you know, 50 being the, the demarcation between expansion and contraction on these surveys. And numbers in the high 50s, low 60s are still exceptionally solid for economic activity. So you take that, you take earnings that continue to come in, as we talked about, surprise to the upside, and markets want to nudge higher. For the S&P 500, we've gone through a bit of a period of sideways move here from mid-April to pretty much the end of June, around the 4,200 level. Nice and healthy to see stocks move sideways for a period, take a little breather, um, set up for what could be a, you know another leg higher, and, and certainly the S and P five hundred is trying to to do that up into the forty four hundred range now. For the Canadian market, similar pattern. It's a little bit behind uh, the S and P five hundred, and in terms of time uh, for that to play out. So the two thousand, uh, sorry, twenty thousand level right. uh, on the TSX, we first uh, crested that you know in and around uh, May. And there's been a number of retests of that 20,000 level, including last week uh, as well with a little sell-off. And now we've been able to manage to get back up above that again. So these sideways periods are normal. I think they're constructive, uh, particularly in the backdrop of the strong gains that we've seen in equities so far. But with monetary policy in the banks that really count, ECB and uh, uh, the Bank of China, another one, the People's Bank of China, and obviously the Fed continuing to be quite accommodative. You've got some fiscal spending, right. you know, fomenting in the backdrop that's going to come down the pipeline. Uh, all of that is a very supportive backdrop uh, for equities, and they're responding in kind. Thanks, Brent. Uh, you did mention uh, in that answer, you talked about the Fed, the uh, ECB, Bank of China, um, and uh, the dovish stance that they have. Uh, I'm curious, we are seeing a bit of a dispersion of central bank policies with uh, Bank of Canada, for example, uh, certainly into the more tightening phase um, where the ECB and Fed doesn't seem like it's, it's following. What implications does this divergent, uh, divergence of central bank policy have for markets? Yeah, so coming out of the uh, pandemic, you had very easy monetary policy synchronized around the world. And this notion of synchronized monetary policy, synchronized global growth has been a theme on and off for the last 10 years or so. And then there's periods where it diverges. And we've got varying stages of synchronized growth and now varying stages of monetary policy response uh, around the world. The Bank of Canada, as you mentioned, the Bank of New Zealand, um, a number of uh, central banks in emerging markets, Brazil, Mexico, some of whom are responding to the strength in the U.S. dollar. But 
regardless of the, the reason, uh, you're seeing some of those banks move uh, a little more hawkish, either overtly with rate increases in some of the emerging markets or on language with, um, with the Bank of Canada. And even with the Bank of New Zealand, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand being pretty descriptive as to ending their quantitative easing in cold turkey style uh, about a year early. But capital markets and the liquidity that, that is coming in such large amounts, I mean, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of New Zealand, these are, these are peripheral uh, actors really in the global uh, scheme of things. And so with the European Central Bank's recent shift in its language to move uh, to a symmetrical inflation targeting regime. Previously, they thought of their inflation target as a ceiling at uh, 2%, a ceiling that was uh, miles and miles ahead, above their heads for many, many years. Uh, but should they get there, there is now uh, overt willingness to, to breach that. The other slight nuance to that language is that they're going to shift away from targeting inflation expectations, which the Fed pays a lot of attention to, and go to actual inflation. So they're also building in um, more accommodation there because inflation expectations should move in advance of the actual inflation. So that lag has disappeared. I think that raises the question as to whether you're increasing the chances for a policy mistake. Um, maybe that's a, a conversation for another day. What it means for today is that the European Central Bank and the Fed are not in any rush to be tightening here. And then you add on top of that what the People's Bank of China did recently. And now you've got the three largest and most important central banks either maintaining a dovish stance and in the case of China, showing uh, a willingness to be flexible in the steps that they're taking uh, as they move forward. That's great, Brent. Um, I'd, I'd like to maybe key in on the uh, People's Bank of China uh, and uh, and key in there and, and figure out what was the move that they've made and, and why is it so important? We've been watching all things from China from the beginning of the pandemic. They were first into the disease and, and first out. And that includes monetary policy and, and fiscal response on the part of uh, the government there. And we saw in February, the People's Bank of China started to tighten monetary policy. And at that time, and we continue to see and think that that is a harbinger for what should and will likely happen in the West as well, as we continue to battle uh, and beat down the disease and reopen and, and try to get things back to normal. What's interesting about the last couple of weeks is right. you had a very slight shift in tone. Normally, central banks, when they embark on a certain path, and this is why it's so important to be sensitive to when that path changes, they tend to stay on it for quite some time. And what the People's Bank of China has done is shown some flexibility here. So they were in tightening mode, tightening mode through February, March, and that was certainly a weight on Chinese uh, equity markets, but emerging markets in general. And it's a headwind for global equities, quite frankly. Uh, when the uh, sure. central bank of China is, is uh, reducing liquidity, and again, this this is not to say tightening. It's at the margin, right? There was still lots of accommodation coming through, but they were trying to be selective in pockets to tamp down some uh, some exuberance uh, in certain areas of the Chinese economy. What they did last week was they uh, did a required reserve ratio cut to the banks, which is one of the tools that they use to loosen monetary policy. The cut in itself, it, it certainly frees up some money to flow into the economy, but it's more symbolic 
in that they are not on a one-way street to tightening um, and, and further tightening and further tightening, that there is some flexibility uh, at the People's Bank of China to ebb and flow with how they see the Chinese economy unfolding, the global economy unfolding, the, pr the progression of the disease, etc. And I think it is a um, smart move on their part to show that flexibility. And again, if we're taking our lead from, from China, I think it's important for other central banks to cue in on that uh, and perhaps adopt that same stance where we can start to remove some measures, see how it goes. And if it's a little too early or too much, you know, ease off uh, as, as we navigate our way out of the unprecedented amount of uh, intervention. And I think the same can be called for as, as we exit uh, some of these programs. Uh, a lot of them have never been tried before, so we may have to be uh, more flexible than we have been in the past. So with the uh, with what you're saying, with the People's Bank of China sort of leading the way um, and uh, adopting more flexibility, how much of a shift is that if that is adopted by ECB, the Fed? Um, you know, could you argue that they've maintained flexible rates in the past, or is this really a shift in the way that they would be operating? Well, they've learned a lot over the past decade and a half of using some of these newfound extraordinary measures. You know, remember there was an argument coming out of the financial crisis. Will central banks raise interest rates first or will they pare back their quantitative easing first? Markets didn't know. Um, central banks weren't sure markets would care. Uh, and markets certainly cared a ton uh, when there was the talk of, um, you know, reducing quantitative easing and we had the, the, the taper tantrum. So they're, they're well telegraphed now that it is a reduction in bond buying, the quantitative easing, a reduction in the, um, the tools that are beyond just interest rates and that it'll be the interest rates that will come later in the tightening campaign. So I think markets uh, understand that from Western central banks for sure. Uh, China is a unique scenario in terms of they have a number of different policy tools that they use there that uh, Western central banks don't typically use as often. And then, so what does that mean? It means everyone is on alert for signs that the Fed will taper. Uh, and the European Central Bank is not even having that conversation yet, uh, is what this move last week uh, signals, and the, the press conference as well. Um, was around this notion of it, it, they still believe it is far too early. Uh, and the way that the vaccination campaign is rolling out in Europe and the fact that it's behind the U.S. Uh, perhaps there's, makes some sense to that. Great. Uh, final question for you before we wrap for this week. Uh, I'd love your comments on the oil market in general. Um, we have seen uh, the volatility in, um, in oil prices match that of equity. Um, but uh, there is some interesting dynamics that I know that you wrote about uh, on uh, supply and demand and what you're seeing in reaction to, to price fluctuation. Uh, maybe you can maybe you can uh, run through that uh, and, and explain that. Yeah, so you're right. The, the price of oil is certainly bouncing around as Delta fears, the Delta variant fears ebb and flow and the vaccine campaign rolls out globally. Um, that all impacts the demand side and, and oil prices are right to to be responding to that um, uncertainty that's there. Then there are 
two other stories really behind the scenes and they're all on the supply side. So I think as everybody's well aware, there is excess supply in the global market, um, namely because OPEC and uh, its partners with Russia and a couple others that are non-OPEC members, the so-called OPEC plus, uh, have been withholding this supply in order to keep uh, oil prices at a level that they find attractive, which is certainly north of, uh, of $60 uh, and potentially as high as 80 or so. That uh, was a lot of um, fluidity in the marketplace over the past month as that OPEC plus group uh, was uh, battering around what to do with these production curbs on a go forward basis. And ultimately, they came to an agreement on the weekend, um, uh, week and a half ago, and uh, they're going to release uh, 400,000 barrels per day. Uh, each month until they go back to normal, which is about uh, almost 6 million barrels per day. So it's a year and a half. It's a slow process. Um, so that was announcement that came on a Sunday. Oil opened down sharply on Monday the 19th, which corresponded to the risk-off move in equity markets as well, uh, but then quickly recovered. And one of the things that's in the background there is North American shale producers, which really were the ones who spawned this OPEC plus cartel um, in order to uh, to combat what was becoming a more dominant North American uh, energy industry. They have been quite disciplined as of late in their supply. So you have the cartel scenario where it's it's um, you know an oligopoly, but in North American energy, it's a capitalist driven system. So there's profit motive uh, and cash flow motive there. In order to um, you know to balance supply and demand, and anytime we've seen oil prices move uh, north of 55, 60, 65, 70 dollars, uh, you typically have seen a fairly quick response. And this is this is one of the beauties, I guess, of um, shale apparatus is you can um, start and, and stop uh, production fairly quickly. So you have this price incentive, and you get. Uh, oil drillers marching back out into the fields and firing up these wells and pumping more oil. Well, we're not seeing that this time around. The response is much more muted. So we've got almost half as many rigs, which is just shy of 400 operating in the U.S., than we would have uh, historically with prices north of $70 a barrel. You've got a couple of million barrels a day of production in the U.S. that we know they're capable of doing. They've done north of 13 million barrels per day uh, at $70. And they're only doing 11 and change um, today at the same price. And part of this is, again, they've learned that uh, maybe they've taken a page out of, out of OPEC Plus uh, and understanding that if everybody rushes out and turns on the taps and floods uh, the supply, it's self-defeating. The price just comes straight back down. Uh, the best cure for uh, high prices in just about anything is high prices, right? It incents further production. And the other is the providers of capital. So... Wall Street in general has been much more discerning. Uh, bond issuance this year has been going toward uh, restructuring balance sheets, paying down debt, rolling debt over at lower interest rates, as opposed to just go out and, and uh, dig and pump and drill. And that that is a real change in the um, mentality, I guess, of, of uh, the providers of capital. So for now, it's certainly supporting oil prices that you have less U.S. production than you otherwise would, given the price incentive. The price incentive is very powerful, so we'll see how long this lasts. 
um, before we see a response from uh, from U.S. shale. Perfect. Thank you very much for that explanation, Brent, and thanks for uh, being so generous with your time today. Very insightful conversation. My pleasure, Matt. Look forward to it. I think I'm off uh, for the next one. You've got a, a special guest stepping in, and we'll talk to you later uh, in the summer. Sounds great. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and Mackenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 